0: Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin?
1: All engines are started. That
2: looks
3: really good.
1: So we'd like it to stir up your cryo tank.
2: Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly.
1: The state of the
3: space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices station this is houston are you ready for the event
1: yes i'm all
4: set yeah
2: Hello and welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with Naked Scientists. I'm Sue Nelson and there's a bit of an American theme to this edition, primarily thanks to Richard Hollingham because he's been gallivanting around the United States mostly. And there's space history today in the form of Dee O'Hara, nurse to the Gemini and Mercury 7 astronauts, reminiscing about her time at Cape Canaveral, Seth Shostak from SETI on why we should rethink our image of E.T., and Space Flight's David Baker on where space fits into the forthcoming presidential election. I
4: have been watching or been involved in U.S. presidential elections for about 50 years, and I cannot remember a time when both parties were so silent on their position regarding space.
2: Now, you can find out whether that's a good or bad thing later on. Meanwhile, let's meet our studio guest, astronomy writer, novelist and broadcaster, Dr Stuart Clark. Now, the next month is uh, it's quite an exciting one, isn't it, for space?
5: Oh, it is. See, there's there's so much that's going on. We've got the Rosetta end of mission, where they're actually going to try and put the spacecraft itself down on the comet that Philae landed on about two years ago.
2: It, it won't be able to see the recently discovered lander, though, will it?
5: No, I think all the passes now that will get us pictures of Philae have been um, have been completed. So the the picture that we now have. Is the best one we'll it's ever It's <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> to see it again. I was thinking about that. Um You know, that day of the landing where we had the pictures of Philae just moving away from the spacecraft.
2: It's three legs.
5: Yes, and just thinking, well, that was the last time we saw it. And now to see it once again after all this time is really albeit upside
2: down and under. No wonder they didn't find it.
5: No wonder they didn't find it. I mean, goodness gracious me, what a place to um, finally um, come to rest. But. It managed to do the science,
2: and we'll both be at Mission Control in Darmstadt for the for the final farewell. It's going to be quite sad, isn't it? For, for everyone concerned. I mean, we've been following it this mission for years. Yeah, the scientists. I think so. I think so. For I, decades, in some cases. You
5: know, I remember doing um, the wake-up day, and just suddenly thought, you know what? I think that these these live blogs um, that the the Guardian does could work. For science in this way, and so we sort of ran that experiment. I was at um, I was at Darmstadt there for the wake-up, and my goodness, what a nail-biter that was with that 15-minute delay, and clearly something had gone a little bit wrong. But Rosetta was now awake; the mission was on. And right from that moment onwards, it's just been nothing but great science and great drama.
2: And uh, just a couple of weeks after Rosetta's end of of mission, ExoMars.
5: ExoMars, yeah, we have the landing of the Schiaparelli um, module on the surface of Mars. So fingers crossed, this is Europe's first um, uh, spacecraft that gets to Mars and transmits data back to us from the planet.
2: Well, from the near future to the early pioneering days of human space travel at NASA now. Most of the pictures, if you look at them, the photos from the late 50s, early 60s, always show these sort of clean cut white men, and they are predominantly white guys with amazingly slick haircuts, sort of short back and sides, and a tendency to wear those huge, big black specs which to be honest I love in fact I've got got a pair now but women were rarely seen in those photos and it's only relatively recently that the roles that they've played in the space program are being sort of rediscovered and celebrated and uh, O'Hara, she held perhaps more traditional role for women at the time because she was a nurse. But she wasn't just any nurse. She was the sole woman working with the first astronauts, including the famous Mercury 7. And by the time they'd been selected, they'd had, you know, they'd had enough of doctors, basically. And here's John Glenn speaking at their first space conference after he was asked which test he'd found the
3: worst. The tests out at Dr. Lovelace's uh, place at Albuquerque out there, uh, certainly some of the tests we had out there were the most trying, and it's it's rather difficult to pick one because if, uh, if you figure how many openings there are on the human body and how far you can go in any one of them... <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, you an- you answer which one would be the toughest for you.
4: <laughs> oh, it's
3: brilliant. Isn't that fab?
2: I've listened to that several times. It still makes me laugh.
5: Absolutely.
2: Oh, great. Well, a few months after that conference, NASA appointed Dee O'Hara, who's now in her 80s, as nurse to the astronauts. And uh, Richard Hollingham met up with her recently at Space Fest in Tucson, Arizona.
1: It was a job that any nurse would do, if you will. You know, you give their physicals, and there are certain things that you do for a physical. And my job out at the Cape was to set up the conference room, the sleeping quarters, and put the lab together and all the things to do for a physical exam. So literally the whole program is being made from scratch? Ground zero. Yeah, exactly. The seven guys were selected in April, what, fifty-nine? And I was selected in November of 59, and I went out to the Cape in January of 60 to set up the, what we called the Aero Med Lab. And what it was was the pre-flight medical area for, for the astronauts in Hangar S, our famous Hangar S. I've always likened that the entire space program launched from from Hangar S because all the activity there was a chamber, you know, altitude chamber there, and the spacecraft was checked out there. The suits were checked out there, so it's everything kind of happened there. And what were they like? I mean, were they intimidating to start with? Because these were
0: very much the right stuff astronauts. Right. These were the best of the best when we it came to they pilots. Were the
1: cream of the crop. As far as intimidating. No, I was terrified the first time I met them because I inadvertently walked in on them. I had only met one astronaut, and that was Deke Slayton. And I almost got a whiplash looking around at him because I, I didn't realize who he was. And then shortly after that, I met, walked into the conference room, and all seven were sitting there. And, of course, I panicked, said, excuse me, and backed out the door and went back up to, say, my office. And John Glenn came up. And he said, "Oh, come on, Dee, come back and and see uh, see the guys, meet the guys." I was 23 years old. I wouldn't happen today, of course, but it, it, I was t- terrified of them. From then on, it was it was being around them and getting to know them. And no, they were never intimidating at all.
0: And part of your job, presumably, was to build trust, so they trusted you, and, and you trusted them to be honest.
1: Yes, I think. With any relationship, it's the longer you're with them, trust either builds or it doesn't. And that was definitely a part, I think, of the strategy of having a nurse out there with them because they knew that if an astronaut got sick or injured themselves, they weren't going to tell a flight surgeon. But Colonel Knopf felt that they probably would tell a nurse. And if not, she would know, she would recognize something was wrong with them. That's a big issue, isn't it?
0: When you've got these men who absolutely want to fly into space,
1: they're going to try and hold things back. They're not going to be honest. They are not going to be honest about it, no. And I don't think any, any pilot would be, especially around medics. The medics are not their most favorite people, and especially flight surgeons, because, as you know, flight surgeons have the power to, to ground them, and that's the last thing they want is to be grounded.
0: And that happened to Deke Slayton.
1: Yes, it did. Apparently, during the, his uh, selection physical, they saw uh, saw some irregular heart rates. He was still selected, but then the flight surgeon thought maybe he ought to be checked out by an expert. And the expert agreed that he did have, well, it's known as atrial fib now, atrial fibrillation. But because we didn't know what would happen to man in space, he was grounded. Rather, they were not going to take a chance and let him fly, not knowing what the rigors of space, weightless, and all that stuff would do to the cardiovascular system. And it was just as simple as that. It was devastating for everybody. I don't want to say they didn't have any other choice, but they really didn't, because you're talking, what, 50-some years ago.
0: And what were they like around needles or the, I mean, the very
1: intrusive tests that, that they had? Right. Were they quite averse to you No, know, most of them, well, none of them liked, really liked to be stuck. And the odd thing was we used to draw blood on them before they flew, and that's unheard of now. And they wouldn't let anybody draw their blood but me. And I kept saying I'm the last person that should be drawing your blood. I'm not a lab technician, and I shouldn't be doing it. No, you're the one that's going to do it, or we're not having it done. They didn't like needles, but they weren't really, you no, know, because they were big, brave men. But I think they were very adult about it all.
0: And can you give us an idea of the types of medical tests? I mean, there were so many, particularly through Mercury and the Gemini program.
1: Well, during the selection physicals at Lovelace Clinic, they turned them every which way but loose. But for pre-flight and that sort of thing, the physical is pretty general. It's like if you went to your doctor for an annual physical you know, they do the ears and the, and the uh, visual and the hearing, and they check your heart, and they do an EKG and maybe a stress test. So it's basically all of those. And then they'll do a chem panel, which and check all your chemistries, blood chemistries, pretty much routine stuff. Now, as the flights either got extended and more research people became involved, then some of the tests got a little more sophisticated. Now, from the outside
0: and reporting on this, you get the impression it was quite a closed club, a quite closed
1: society. It really was. Well, you had a tendency to to stick with your, quote, your own kind, and that was very much true at, at Houston. And it's simply because I think they were only comfortable with themselves, their own kind, if you will, plus the flight director and people that they really knew because so many people wanted a piece of them and, and just bugged the hell out of them. They didn't mean to because they were so excited at getting to see an astronaut, let alone be with one. I mean, the guys were always very gracious about it, but it, it got to be pretty old for them because it didn't matter where they went. They couldn't eat a meal. They couldn't do this and that because everybody was after them for something. And particularly, most people wanted something from them. What's the tension like? On the ground, given that you are part of this, and there's nothing you can do. You truly could feel the tension in the air. Y- you know, they're sitting on top of this big, big Roman candle, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, and there was a lot of power and fuel underneath them, and so it was always that was the scary part. Was was when that thing lit off, and particularly the Saturn, the Apollo. Oh my goodness, when that Saturn V took off, you knew something monumental had uh, had happened it was a very tense time, I think, until they cleared the tower and and were on their way. but it was always very or at least for me, it was always very scary, even though I knew they were capable, but i didn 't trust machinery all that much, but thank God it always worked what 's it like though, on the ground,
0: when something is going wrong so with john glenn 's flight, for example it wasn 't clear that the heat shield was still intact. Oh, yeah. With Gemini, you had uh, Gene Cernan's Spacewalk, where his spacesuit overheated, and, of course, Apollo 13, the most famous.
1: Those were, I don't know quite, they were days that didn't seem to end. They were very scary. They were, the tension was, was palpable. It really—you could really feel the tension, and, and everybody tried to— they, nobody made light of it, but you tried not to talk about it, because then it made it very real. It was just a scary time, and, and 13 particularly. Boy, that was—that was a cliffhanger. That was a nail-biter, believe me. But because of the the talent and the trainers, the, the uh, uh, things that the crews trained in, and people were so tuned in to everything— that helped get them back. And they, they worked in those simulators night and day, They did 24 hours a day around the clock, trying to figure out how can we do this to get them back.
0: Did you have any favorites or any astronauts that you're probably not going to name names? Any astronauts who were particularly difficult?
1: Oh, were difficult? No, not really. Now, granted, I was closer to some more than, than others. But I certainly didn't experience any of them. God knows I knew all of them. No, there wasn't a bad apple in the barrel, believe me, at all. They were all really good guys. The wonderful
2: De O'Hara, nurse to the first astronauts. I thought it was quite interesting there when she was talking about everyone wanting a piece of the astronauts, because that hasn't changed really. And it made me reevaluate my own behaviour and the fact that um, every astronaut I've met Nowadays, I try and get a selfie or a
5: photo
2: <laughs> or, or, or or an autograph or something. I felt you're, a bit guilty.
5: You're, you're part of the problem, Sue. I,
2: yeah. I am, obviously.
5: But isn't it amazing how it is, the, the focus is on the astronauts still and even today. And so all of these amazing jobs that actually make it happen, they don't really get the limelight.
2: The good thing is, though, that every astronaut I've spoken to, they know that it's a team effort and they always stress it's a team and that team, be it the computer programmers, the mathematicians, the engineers, um, the comms people, you know, everyone on the ground, mission controllers, the nurse, the people who are involved in the medical testing, that they would not be there without hundreds, mm. in some cases thousands, of people yes. working on it.
5: It's it's one of those interesting uh, things, isn't it? One of those interesting statistics that when you you talk to young people about careers in space and things like that um they never really talk about support roles for the for the human spaceflight program it's um you know when they're much younger probably they think about being astronauts um and but not in supporting the activities and all the all all the incredibly professional things that have to happen
2: i think that applies to everything does not it if you want to be an actor you don't say I want to spend a lot of my time working as a waiter, desperate for that <laughs> short walk-on role on a TV series. You just think, I want to be in the movies. You know? <laughs>
5: the first step of my career will be sweeping the stage yeah. at the old man. Exactly.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, the astronauts get all get all the glory. You're listening to Space Boffins with Sue Nelson and Stuart Clark in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Now, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence organisation SETI rebranded its logo recently to include a question mark. And for more than 50 years now, SETI has used radio telescopes to scan the cosmos looking for signs of intelligent life, which does make you wonder, why hasn't anyone answered that call? Well, one reason, according to Seth Shostak, who's a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in California, could be that we're expecting to make contact with some sort of soft, squishy alien in a humanoid form. And as Richard discovered, the latest theory is that AI is the way forward for Homo sapiens to discover ET. While
3: there are plenty of people who say you'll never be able to make a machine that can do what a human brain can do, I think they may be whistling in the dark. So if we can do that within a couple of hundred years after inventing radio, well, any aliens we hear from are very likely to have already gone past that point. In other words, most of the intelligence in the cosmos, I would venture, is synthetic intelligence. So E.T. is an artificial intelligence, or quite possibly? I think the majority of them are very likely to be, yes. Yes, indeed. And that may disappoint moviegoers who expect little grey guys with big eyeballs and no hair and no clothes and no sense of humour. What's happened to the little grey guys then? They've been superseded. Not in the films or TV yet, no, because they've become kind of iconic. I mean, it's like, you know, good cowboys with white hats and white horses. I mean, it's a shortcut to the storytelling to have the ETs look like little short guys, little grey guys. But in fact, I think that that's a little bit anthropocentric. It's, it's too much thinking they'll be like us. I mean, it would be like, I don't know, trilobites. Ask trilobites, what do you think aliens would look like? And they probably figure they'd look like trilobites. <laughs>
0: What makes you think, though, that these would be artificial intelligences, that
3: the the biological intelligences behind them are not still around? Well, they might still be around, but if you think about it, once you develop artificial intelligence, you can use that to design the next generation of thinking thing, whatever it is, right? That doesn't work for humans. I mean, you you might be smarter or dumber than your parents, but on average you're about the same, right? We're no smarter than Julius Caesar was, and that was 2,000 years ago. So we don't change very quickly. But if you have an artificial intelligence, a thinking machine, the first thing you ask it, you, st- you design something smarter than you are, and you build that. And then you ask that same question of the successor machine. And within you know 50 years, you have a machine that's far smarter, not only than all the previous machines, but certainly smarter than all humans put together. And where does this leave SETI? I mean, does this change how you listen? I think it does, because... We tend to aim our antennas, our radio telescopes, in the directions of star systems that we think, okay, that star system might have a planet sort of like the Earth, you know, liquid oceans, atmospheres, all the things that we find so salubrious here on Earth. But that means we're looking for biological intelligence. If you're talking about machine intelligence, it doesn't have to be on a planet like that. It can get up and move somewhere else. That's something that's hard for us, easy for a machine. So you you could actually look anywhere... Yeah, that's the whole problem. In, in fact, not only could they be anywhere, I mean, you might say, well, it would make sense for them to go to places in the universe where there are big sources of energy because, you know, machines like to have a lot of energy. If you're going to do a, a lot of thinking, well, <laughs> then a lot of energy helps. So that maybe that's the place to look. But on the other hand, what would motivate them to broadcast signals, for example? I mean, it's it's very hard for us to intuit what they might do. We can imagine what other creatures sort of like ourselves might be interested in doing. But here you're starting from something that we don't even have yet, and trying to decide what will it do that we could find. So is this going to lead to a change of policy
0: of SETI where you point your antennas?
3: I don't know. I can't speak for the long term. In the short term, I don't think it is, because in the short term what I see is that the SETI uh, scientists, and there aren't very many of them in the entire world, there might be a dozen or two, uh, but they're still really fixated on looking at Earth-like planets. If we can find Earth-like planets immediately the antennas are turned in those directions. And, and we've done that many times. We do it ourselves at the SETI Institute. So I think that the old paradigm is still very much dominant. But I think that over the course of time, if we can come up with some ideas about where you might find synthetic intelligence, I think there'll be more and more experiments aimed at doing that. And are you still a
0: listening project, or are you moving towards being a broadcast project, a broadcast,
3: here we are, at sending messages out? Well, there certainly are people at the SETI Institute who would like to broadcast. uh, And uh, I I have no problem with that myself, to be quite honest. I mean, I don't agree with those who think it's, uh, you know, possibly a fatal move and all that. But we have no broadcasting capability. Our uh, Allen Telescope Array, which is the array of antennas that we use for listening, is for listening. There are no transmitters on it. You can't broadcast anything with it. And and the other thing about mm, broadcasting is that, you know, even if you do it, it might be a very long time before you get a response, depending on how close the aliens are. And has SETI still got a momentum? Is there a point where you say, there's nothing there? Yeah, I don't think you can ever say there's nothing there. You know, you can't prove that negative. But what you can say is, we've been doing this so long, there's obviously something wrong with our approach. That might happen. But I don't see that happening until we've looked at at least, you know, a million different locations on the sky. At that point, I would say, okay, this is not the right experiment. But uh, remember that the speed of the experiments keeps getting faster and faster thanks to improvements in technology. So for me, it's very, very early days to think about giving up.
0: And you're confident that ET is, is there, an intelligent ET is there?
3: Well, I think so, because otherwise you're saying that what happened here on Earth is some sort of miracle. And usually that doesn't get by the uh, the referees at any professional journal. Setis,
2: Seth Shostak. Now, uh, I disagree with him about... The Gray is not having a sense of humour. He's obviously not seen the film Paul. But um, <laughs> other than that, what do you think of the theory, Stuart?
5: Well, I think it's on pretty shaky ground, to be honest. Why? I mean, you know, something created these artificial intelligences in the first place. And why, why would you expect a machine to then want to go and explore? And what what it needs... You see, it's not just creating a machine that can sort of process information faster than our brains. It's about creating a fully conscious artificial being that can set its own agendas, that can have a sense of ambition and drive and decide what to do with its artificial life here. But that's the
2: subject of lots of research ongoing at the moment here, though.
5: But we still have no idea, you see, what gives us consciousness. We don't know where that springs from. So so to say that um, it is inevitable that we will develop machines that can do this and to set their own agendas and can explore space if they want, um, it, it, it's it's not... You, you're nowhere close to being able to say that that's a conclusion at the moment.
2: Although you could look at Voyager, say, to... A civilization on Earth a 100 years ago, that would appear to be an amazing example of artificial intelligence. Yes, you have got people who programmed it behind, but you've got this machine exploring and returning information back to Earth. So on some level, I can sort of see the logic there, as well as its it's a good idea to not be so human-centric is to think all life must be like us, and so let's widen our scope.
5: Yes, I agree with widening the scope um, completely because one of the things that I think where SETI falls down is all the incredible amount of assumptions that are made about where extraterrestrials might be transmitting and these sorts of things. And also, of course, Even the Allen Telescope Array, that's that's not really sensitive enough to pick up just stray radio transmissions from these planets. What's being relied on is extraterrestrial civilizations purposely beaming signals saying, look, we're here. And as you heard um, Seth talking about, you know, there's no consensus about whether we should do that. So we could be in this situation where we've just got a galaxy full of eavesdroppers all desperately trying not curtain to twitches. make it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Astronomical curtain twitches.
5: But no one's making any sound in case they themselves get seen. So broaden the approach. What I would say is just get rid of the radio telescopes that are dedicated to doing this. Turn them just to normal astronomical research and put all the money that's being um, used for SETI into developing pattern recognition software that can sit on any telescope.
2: That's a good idea. That's whether it's radio,
5: idea. whether it's visible, infrared, gamma ray, anything like that. And they just pass everything through pattern recognition software because one of the things that I think is a, is a, is a key marker is whether the signal's modulated in some way we only really know of one natural source that's modulated, and that's the pulsars. I remember when um, uh, Jocelyn Belber f- found that signal, you know, they called it LGM1, Little Green, little green Man. Yeah, yes. You know, only half jokingly.
2: What about recently the uh, excitement and then deflation with... Uh the possible Dyson sphere that could be on a distant planet, <laughs>
5: the alien megastructure—how we, how we loved that headline. I mean, th- this, in a way, is the kind of thing I am talking about. So there was a signal that came from the Kepler space mission, and that telescope detected this really peculiar uh, drop in starlight that initially looks as if it, it, it can't have a natural source to it and so that instantly pings your your imagination to start thinking is it something that's that's artificial that's a bit like not the face
2: on mars that, which is just a rock <laughs> yes the,
5: yes exactly and that's the kind of thing that i think we should be looking for and open to is to see these strange anomalies and just have a little thought in the back of our heads is could that be a little signature of extraterrestrial um intelligence at work
2: Do you believe there is intelligent life out there?
5: It's something I'm agnostic about um, because having done quite a lot of work at one stage on the kinds of statistics that are involved, um, it's not enough to say that the universe is so big that we can't be the only life form because we still don't know how life on Earth began. And so until we have that exact step-by-step process, we can't actually quantify whether um, it's likely or not likely. So we're not in a position to say whether it's it's likely to be a common occurrence or, as Seth said, a miracle. We just don't have enough information. So uh, do I believe they're out there? I'd like to think they're out there. But I don't have enough information to come down one way or another.
2: You can okay. tell you have come from a science background, can't you? It's just shocking. Really. <laughs> it is. <gasps> I mean, also there was um, Proxima b, that is. It's what, a trillion miles away. How likely do you think that is? That seems to be everyone pin the hopes on that in a way, as oh, being what, this Earth-like planet.
5: What a gift. Really. It's probably a rocky planet. It's at least 1.3 times the mass of the Earth probably larger, um, hopefully not too large, because we'd still like it to be rocky, uh, but around the nearest star, just 4.3 light years away. And it's in the kind of location that astronomers have become extremely interested in. So it's in the nominal habitable zone around a red dwarf star. And we know that there are vastly more red dwarf stars than there are stars like the Sun. And that we're finding quite a lot of planets in those habitable zones around these red dwarf stars. And now here is one right on our doorstep that will be within reach of the next generation of telescopes that are being built at the moment. We stand a real chance of being able to analyse this planet to see if it is potentially habitable um, or not. So, yes, it's a, it, it's just the f- most fantastic natural laboratory um, that nature could have given us. I mean, jump for joy, really.
2: I love it. I love it. I mean, I'm always more on the positive side of this, um, being a sci-fi fan as well as having, you know, the science <laughs> background too, but I err on the no, no. I I, I don't like, for me, it seems arrogance to assume that we are so special uh, that it can only be we're we're alone in the universe it's just us this planet is unique particularly when we're finding life forms that we didn't even know would exist on our planet all the time and it's extreme temperatures as well we've had to rethink on earth how we define life when you find examples of life in darkness, which previously think, oh no, you'd have to have light. In extreme cold temperatures, extremely hot temperatures. Mm. So, uh, yeah, mm. I think the the widening aspect, mm. um, I think, is a great idea. But I like your idea of of, of the, the 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 recognition mm-hmm. software. I think that's that's great.
5: Mm. I mean, I think definitely you're right that the trajectory of the research is going in a positive direction. And I think one of the great analyses and technologies that we should pursue is trying to isolate the light from these planets because then we can do the spectral analysis to get the atmospheric composition of these worlds. And then we can see if those atmospheres are in chemical equilibrium or not. And if they're not in chemical equilibrium, is it biology that's producing the additional gases So we do have techniques. We know in principle how to do this. We just need to build the technology, the bigger telescopes to actually do this. Do you think the
2: funding is there, though, for this sort of
5: thing? I think it's one of the things that, well, I think as well the the, um, extremely large um, telescope that's being built in Chile at the moment, that's that's having equipment designed to do this kinds of thing for planets, um, nearest planets, biggest planets, those kinds of things. And what we will see, I think, is within a decade, a new sense that we should do a mission like this in space. And let's see this time if the funding becomes available to do that.
2: Brilliant. Well, even if you don't live in the United States, I'm pretty sure you'll be aware that there's a fierce battle going on for president at the moment. Now, we've heard everything so far from email security concerns to building a wall on the Mexican border. But what do we know about each candidate's attitude towards space? Well, considering NASA is the world's largest space agency, this is an important issue. And as luck would have it, the editor of Spaceflight magazine, David Baker, is also a former NASA engineer. And he explained to Richard Hollingham how he views the current position of space in American politics.
4: I have been watching or been involved in US presidential elections for about 50 years, and I cannot remember a time when both parties were so silent on their position regarding space. Why do you think that is? I have a feeling it's because, in the good old American term, it's a slam dunk. We have never seen a time in which there has been so much bipartisan support in Congress for the space programme. And I think NASA's budget increases, which now have been given the nod at 2 to 5% above inflation each year for the next five years is an indication that Congress has already made up its mind and the presidential
0: caravan has moved on. And that's really where the power lies, isn't it? Congress rather than actually the White House.
4: The president can make no decision other than to choose options to put before Congress. All laws, all
0: budgets have to be signed off by Congress. All the president can do is propose them. So what does Congress want from NASA? Is this something about national pride? Is this something about national identity, a a forward-looking nation, tick off the moon, the Mars, asteroids, all those sorts of things? I think there is a very strong awareness in both presidential camps and certainly as well
4: in Congress that it is very good economic sense for the nation to keep pushing very, very hard. And they're beginning to realise now the payback from Apollo we got on those very much bigger budgets, which returned so much more to the national economy. So it's what, taken them 50 years (laughs) to figure this out? (laughs) I think finally it, it has come home through the International Space Station and through the general diversity of challenges. There's China knocking on the door, India has very bold aspirations... And Congress is now wrapping up and integrating both the civil
0: and the military development of space potential for the United States. So let's talk specifics then. You've got the International Space Station being funded well for probably at least another five years or so. There's this vague ambition of going to, to Mars. NASA keeps talking about Mars at every opportunity. The moon, well, the European Space Agency wants to talk about the moon. NASA's current plan is asteroid and then Mars, and of course the space launch system being built, so a, a giant rocket capable of doing all these things. What is the actual plan? The plan is to build a spacecraft
4: that can achieve it, because the SLS can launch a vehicle that doesn't exist to keep people in space for more than four weeks, and NASA is going very hard this year, 2016, as we come up to the new financial year, 2017, toward the development of a deep space habitat, and there are Six companies presently that have been given seed money to come up with a vehicle, a Habitat, that is rather like a space station module that can have the Orion capsule plugged on one end, ready to come back to Earth, but can do these very, very deep space missions, whether to the Moon or to the vicinity of Mars
0: even. So this would be attached to the Orion vehicle on as as part of this... System, So you have the Orion capsules, like the command module, if you like, and then you have this habitation module, so you could do much longer, ha- have much longer flights. Yes, that's right. You need something that can keep crew
4: alive for periods of nine months to a year initially, and then, of course, for up to three years for Mars missions, um, for keeping the crews alive and fit and healthy and all the consumables, because the Orion spacecraft itself is very limited.
0: Four people, four weeks is its maximum Capability. What about the moon then? Because China has—it's very clear it wants to go to the moon. The European Space Agency—they're well, talking about the moon. There's no money there, but I, I think that the feeling is in Europe that the moon would be a better destination. Uh, Russia could well be a part of that that deal. NASA keeps talking about Mars. Every launch, it's our mission to Mars or our journey to Mars. No one seems particularly excited about the idea of going to an asteroid or capturing an asteroid. Could NASA switch and go, let's go to the moon, let's go back to the moon, let's beat China to the moon?
4: I think the availability of another option other than directed to Mars is going to be good for a new administration because they always want to get their hands on and change plans. I don't think they're going to change hardware sets. We're now well on track with this big super boost to the SLS and the next generation deep space vehicle, Orion. Commercial operations may very well come up with a deep space habitat. It's very likely, in my view, that the next administration will want to seek to spread the cost By not only having Europe build part of the Iran spacecraft, as they're doing right now, but also be part of the architecture. And I think we are going to be going back to the moon before we head for Mars.
0: What about space science missions and ambitions for robotic exploration of the solar system, but also of the Earth? I mean, an awful lot of NASA's budget goes into, for example, climate research. Yes, I think the balance between
4: offloading a number of other government agencies into NASA, as has happened in the last two years with regard to environmental sciences and with regard to climate monitoring and weather systems as well, NASA has never had a more hands-on role than it has now when it went through a period where it was fractionating out into various other government agencies. There is a very good, strong sign of solid support for that. We seem to be living in the heyday of pro-space among the politicians and the budget writers ...because they are providing the legislative framework for NASA to be able to exploit the technology which it has always been rather short-changed on in the last couple of decades. There's enormous potential at NASA and there's never been a better time to group internationally with this enormous body of expertise now in Europe... The Russians want to cooperate if we can only get them back on board politically. They've got tremendous experience in their own programmes there and great aspirations. So I think across the board, NASA and America have never looked in a better position to be able to exploit world talent. And I think that's where NASA is headed. And there's going to be a lot of support for that in Congress.
2: David Baker, sounding quite excited there, the editor of Spaceflight magazine. If there's a Republican president, Donald Trump's America first attitude, now that could potentially affect the current international aspect of working in space because space is all about collaborations in internationally. Do you think that could, could really be problematic?
5: It's so difficult to really know. As my, my understanding is, and this might be completely flawed, is that it's the vice president that is the sort of the overseer of NASA
2: or oh, perhaps some of our American listeners can uh, yes, help us please, out with this, yeah.
5: Please do correct me if that's, <laughs> if that's wrong. As we heard David talking about, you know, Congress is really the driver of what they would like NASA to do, and the driver really is to spread the cost. Now, I have to say, I have not heard anybody talk that enthusiastically about NASA for years. I mean, it's, in one way, it's quite refreshing, to hear all of these positive things um, from someone who who knows his stuff, really does. What I've been hearing is a little bit similar to what David was saying and that it just needs the change of administration to gradually refocus back onto the moon. That this idea of just going straight to Mars... It it
2: seems running before you can walk. It's
5: bonkers. I mean, it really is. I mean, you're out there on your own for a very, very long time. And And yet
2: all these simulated missions have been um, ongoing, but then that's sort of from a psychological point of view as opposed to a technical point of view.
5: And the space radiation point of view. I mean, we now know how dangerous the radiation is. So at least if you're on the moon... Well, you, relatively speaking, you're pretty close.
2: Yeah, you've got a good head start, haven't you? In in so many other ways, you've tested everything. I still would love a moon base.
5: Me too. I mean, they, you know, the South Pole of the moon in and around um, where and there's Shackleton and, and the Aitken <laughs> Basin and all of that, that seems to be the clear, clear focus um, for where to go. And lots and lots of mission proposals, robotic first and things like that. I think it's going to be really interesting at the end of this year to see where the money comes forward for ESA. At the end of this year, they have their ministerial. That's right in December, where they decide some priorities. And four years ago, I think it was uh, maybe a little bit longer they decided uh, not to do the moon, effectively, to do ExoMars. And, of course, the current
2: Director General of the European Space Agency is very pro with his moon village
5: idea. And this is a really interesting concept, that actually this is not a big, planned-out thing Like the International Space Station where you say, well, I'm going to build this and you can build that and then we're going to put them together on this date and we're going to have scientists from you over here and we're going to send scientists from you over there and let's work all this framework out for how we do this. It's just saying, well, why don't we all agree that here's an area that we want to go to? and that we'll keep the lines of communication open and where our plans um, match one another's. Let's see if there's some cooperation. But otherwise, we'll all just sort of be in and around this area and just let something grow organically. So it's it, it's interesting as an approach. It's not the the full-on profile for a mission and a Mars and a moon base um, that we might have expected at the beginning of the space race Um, but it might be the way forward now.
2: I love the fact that at Amsterdam airport along the big long escalator that normally takes you to the cheap easy jet flights that I get (laughs) I guess anyway to go to ESA-STEC where they test all the spacecraft there are big banners for ESA and various missions. And several of those banners talk about a moon, a moon village. So it's, uh, it's I think it's aspirational, but it's also practical. And uh, I'm sure it's something that we will definitely return to mm-hmm. on a Space boffins podcast after... Uh, December. Well, that's uh, it for this edition, though of Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Do follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and join the growing community of space fans around the world. Um, incidentally, it is World Space Week at the beginning of October, so do check out what's going on wherever you are. There is lots of quite good things going on in the, in the UK. Our huge thanks as ever for support from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and a grant from the Royal Astronomical Society. And special thanks to my guests, astronomy writer, broadcaster, and novelist Dr. Stuart Clark. And I can't finish without referring to an important anniversary that has just taken place. 50 years since the first episode of Star Trek on TV. It's what got me into science, into space. And I know from speaking to so many scientists and space scientists how influential that programme was. Did you like Star Trek, Stuart?
5: Absolutely. Good. Love Otherwise,
2: it. I'd throw you out. I should have asked you that at the beginning. Of the I track.
5: funded my PhD by writing the video sleeves for um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I self funded my PhD at the University of Hertfordshire, and my job was to be the copywriter for um, all the Star Trek videos that um, came out in the mid 90s.
2: Oh, respect, respect. So it's not just you. I've got a friend, Kent Powers, who is uh, a writer on the new Star Trek series as well. So I feel pretty well connected now huge kudos to star trek for all it's done for for all of us space fans to, and for people who thought about space as a career as a, as a result of that program so everyone all i can say is until next time live long and prosper
4: resume course to our next destination mr sutter